Hello to all on a Thursday afternoon. We'll be uh, celebrating our Independence Day, 4th of July coming up this weekend. We have a new uh, announcement from our governor here in Texas, Governor Abbott, that we're gonna be looking at. And uh, hopefully everyone will remain safe this weekend. Certainly I personally would encourage you to wear a mask whenever you can, whenever you're out in public and you can't uh, socially distance yourself from others. Um, but uh, I want to uh, encourage everyone to try to be considerate of others, be as safe as you can, and continue to be in prayer to our great God for uh, our situation and the situation in other communities and our nation and all around the world, really. Um, and so that's, uh, that is something that we were just talking about, which caused me to be a couple of minutes late coming on. But hopefully we'll have a good gathering today. We're going to be starting in Acts 11 and then going to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to get to read about uh, some interesting occurrences and happenings in these two chapters, including one of only three places where the Christians, uh, uh, the term Christian is actually used. That may surprise you that it's only found three times in the New Testament, but that is the case, and we're going to read the first one of those today. Uh, we'll also read about the first apostle who was killed for the faith. We've read about the first Christian martyr who was Stephen, as you recall, I'm sure, uh, one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6, and then uh, a great uh, message and sermon that he gave, history of the Jews and applying it to Jesus and then uh, applying it to his hearers and calling on them to repent and then uh, meeting um, a, a fate similar to what Jesus did, not death by crucifixion at the hands of the Roman and Jewish authorities, but rather a mob uh, stoning uh, to death of Stephen, and he is the first one recorded anyway to give his life uh, for the faith. The uh, apostles had been uh, beaten and flogged uh, in Acts chapter 5. In chapters 3 and 4, they had been threatened uh, to stop preaching in the name of Christ or else that would happen, and uh, they didn't, and sure enough, it happened, and they praised God that they were able to uh, continue to uh, preach the name of Christ uh, and the gospel of Jesus and salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection in spite of punishment. And that's how chapter 5 ends. And then chapter 6, the whole Stephen story in chapter 6 and 7. And then in chapter 8, we're introduced to this man by the name of Saul of Tarsus at the end of chapter 7. They're approving of the, the killing of Stephen and then being the point man for uh, this uh, Jewish uh, uh, active uh, threats on the church and on anyone who would name the name of Christ until his conversion in Acts chapter 9. Seeing Jesus, the resurrected Lord, on the road to Damascus, being told to go into the city and he'll be told what to do, and Ananias, a Christian man, being sent to him in chapter 9. Uh, and uh, after Paul, after Saul prays, for, uh, prays and fasts for three days, he is met by Ananias, who tells him to get up and be baptized and wash his sins away. Uh, and that uh, uh, scripture found in Acts 22, verse 16. And then in Acts chapter 10, um, where we see one of those extraordinary events, just like Acts chapter 2 is an extraordinary event, uh, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, a very important moment for the church. And then the conversion of Cornelius and his family, the first Gentiles, the first non-Jews, accepted into the church uh, through the extraordinary means of God giving Cornelius a vision so that he would send for Simon Peter, who uh, was in the town of Joppa, and would be uh, brought to Caesarea, where Cornelius was, uh, this Italian Roman officer. Um, and, um, and then uh, you have uh, Peter himself receiving visions. Uh, of God with the, uh, uh, the message, do not call anything unclean that I have called clean. And uh, hearing Cornelius' story, uh, Peter realizes at the end, uh, of, towards the end of Acts 10, that God is no respecter of persons, Acts 10 verses 34 and 35, but accepts anyone who will fear him and do what is right. And uh, while Peter is still going on, the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his family, these Gentiles listening to the gospel with open hearts. And uh, Peter and the Jews that were with him, the Jewish Christians who had come with him from Joppa, uh, he says, how can we keep them from being baptized? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we did at first. 
So only those two instances where that Holy Spirit is given in that way, uh, in Acts 2 at Pentecost uh, to signify the beginning of the church, and in Acts 10 uh, to signify the acceptance of the Gentiles. No longer do they have to keep the law, no longer do they have to become Jews, but rather they will, uh, just like any other human being, they will believe in Jesus, repent of their life, uh, sins and direction away from God, and confess that faith and be baptized into Jesus Christ. So we, we see that in Acts chapter 10. That was last uh, week's, or last Tuesday's lesson. If you want some more information about that, uh, you can uh, uh, go back to the Tuesday lesson um, from Acts chapter 10 and the beginning, the first half of chapter 11, where Peter has to go back to Jerusalem and defend himself. Um, and so that's kind of where we left there in Acts 11, verse uh, 18. We start with verse 19 today, and I've got a few of the regulars coming on. Nice to see you, Debbie, and Larry, and Lynn, and Eric, and Cindy. Hooray, hooray. I'm sure we'll have some more that may uh, come along, and that'll be great. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to get started. Uh, remember I, the question that I had, who was the first apostle martyred for the faith? It obviously wasn't Peter or Paul. You might remember a few others. Uh, two of the ones that you probably remember are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and it's going to be one of them. Um, okay, so we're about um, a few years maybe after Cornelius has been baptized, after the Gentiles have been accepted, after uh, Saul of Tarsus has uh, become a Christian and a preacher and now is developing very quickly into a, a great evangelist and uh, missionary as we're going to see in the chapters uh, that follow that we'll look at next uh, week. Uh, but for now, we're introduced to what would become uh, Paul's home church. Uh, in fact, it would become the church that sends him out on, in his, on his mission work. Interestingly enough, it's not the Jerusalem church, which was the church where the, the city where the church was, was uh, begun. And until uh, Acts chapter 8 and that death of Stephen and the persecution led by Saul of Tarsus, the church was basically staying there. And, and then they were forced out. And as Acts 8, 4 says, they went everywhere preaching the word. Well, one of the places that some of the disciples all ultimately end up is this place called Antioch of Syria. Uh, there's an Antioch of Pisidia around in the middle of what we would call today uh, the nation of Turkey. Uh, that Antioch in Pisidia uh, was uh, something that Paul and Barnabas stopped at on their first mission journey. But this is Antioch of Syria, Syria um, and being north of uh, Palestine, um, uh, the, uh, the town of Antioch, the city of Antioch, really close to the coast, but just off the coast, the far northeast coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they're kind of in the lower right corner of the nation, what we would call Turkey, if you were going to be looking at it on a modern day map. Uh, but right up there on the very northern part uh, of, of Syria in the time uh, of Christ. So um, uh, that's where we begin in Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, as we said in Acts, uh, 5, uh, Acts 6, 7, and 8, uh, that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, verse 20, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Obviously, upon hearing it from Jerusalem that, hey, we can now go out and evangelize among the Gentiles and not ask them to become Jews, not ask them to keep the law, uh, they took that seriously at this church in Antioch. Uh, and when they hear that word and some others come and join them, uh, then they begin to actively evangelize uh, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, uh, as well, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Um, and so we keep reading in verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. They heard about this very cosmopolitan, very Hellenistic uh, very outreach-oriented uh, uh, contemporary church in Antioch, uh, miles to the north. And, and so they're going to send somebody. Well, who are they going to send? Well, they're going to send the son of encouragement. They're going to send this great man by the name of Barnabas. 
Uh, Acts 11, verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, what a great statement that is, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. You remember Barnabas, right? He was the guy who at the end of Acts chapter 4 sold some property, brought the money, gave it to the apostles, and uh, told them, look, do with this what you want. And, uh, and so they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. And then in Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus is converted there in Damascus, um, now what? <laughs> well, he starts preaching immediately, but that doesn't mean that everybody trusts him. In fact, they don't. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and who is it that's going to help him uh, kind of get that inside uh, uh, relationship with some of the church leaders there? Well, it turns out Barnabas was the man for the job. Uh, he goes and he gets Saul of Tarsus, and he takes him by the hand, I would imagine, and takes him in to see the apostles and elders there in Jerusalem and uh, helps him to be able to, to show that he is on the level, that he is uh, who they have heard he was, now a Christian, uh, preaching the gospel that he had once tried to destroy. So it's that Barnabas that now, again, is called upon to be an encourager. And so he goes to the church at Antioch from uh, the, the church at Jerusalem, and he goes there and he sees everything that's going on and he is, his heart is glad and uh, the, the church there is helped because of his ministry and a great number of people were brought uh, to the Lord through their work, through his work. Barnabas described as being full of the Holy Spirit and faith, a good man. Well, Barnabas now is going to think, who? We need we need more help. This is a this is this church is ready to explode. It's it's such a great opportunity. What can we do? Who do we need to get that would be ideal to help us uh, continue to evangelize and grow this church? Well, that would be Saul of Tarsus. In Acts eleven verse twenty five, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, Acts 11, verse 26. This is the first time and one of only three times that we see that term used in the New Testament. And it's interesting, it's not used to describe them in Jerusalem. It's not used to describe some other place. It's used to describe this very Hellenistic, this very evangelistic church in Antioch of Syria. Barnabas and Saul now are both there. They are working with the church, with the, with the, the disciples there, trying to teach Jew and Gentile uh, the gospel of Christ. And sure enough, uh, this scripture is found. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That term is just the term Christ, of course, but also um, basically referring to someone who is a follower of Christ. And, um, and again, it's only used three times. The other two times, the, first, the, the next time it's used is still in Acts, in Acts 26, when Paul is defending himself uh, before uh, uh, the, the Jewish leader Herod and, uh, and the Roman uh, leaders there, the governor, uh, Festus and uh, the others that are that are there with King Agrippa, who is a um, familiar with uh, the way with the Jews and with these Christians. It is King uh, it, it is King Agrippa who says in that in that moment, "Why you you can almost persuade me to be a Christian?" And do you think that in just a short time, one lesson really, as Paul tells his story? and then tells the story of Jesus and the resurrection, and Agrippa says, are you, are you trying to convert me? Do you think in such a short time I could be converted and become a Christian? That's the second time that term is used. And then the last time is in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we may, if we have time, look at that passage a little bit later. Because in 1 Peter 4, that's another place where the term Christian is used, but it's used in the context of suffering. And the Apostle Peter talks about if you suffer, let it be as a Christian and not simply because you've done something bad. 
Uh, in these first two incidences, in Acts 11 and in Acts 26, the disciples being called Christian, Agrippa saying almost candidly or, or sarcastically, perhaps, we don't know his tone, but could be, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? The familiar translation, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The old hymn we have almost persuaded, taken from that translation of Acts chapter 26, verse 28. And in those two instances, it could be that that term was a derogatory term. Some have suggested that the term was attached to, the, to this, group, this sect, uh, which is still being seen as a sect of the Jews, to this group of people because it was pejorative. It was something that they used uh, to make fun of them, that this man who was crucified as a criminal, uh, you're his followers, and so we're going to lump you with him. Uh, little did they know that by doing that, uh, they, they gave the church the name, if that's where it came from, they gave the church the name that the, the church for centuries to come, and even still today, would take that term as the primary description for, um, for those who follow Christ. I was at Harding University this past year for their lectureship, and their, their uh, subject was the, the book of Acts, and they talked a lot about disciples, uh, because again, the term Christian only used a few times, three times exactly, in the New Testament, but the term disciples is used a lot of times, but interestingly enough, never after the book of Acts. You can check me up on these things, but the term disciples is used a lot talking about those men that Jesus uh, was working with, especially those 12, uh, but others who decided to follow Christ. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, the, book of the word disciples is used a lot. Um, but after the book of Acts, it's not used. It's not used um, in the letters that Paul writes. Uh, believers, uh, those kinds of terms are more likely the ones to be used. So it's kind of interesting that the two words that we primarily use, disciples and Christian, Christians, weren't used that much. Uh, disciples used a lot in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and then not ever after that. And Christian used only three times in the whole New Testament, starting here in Acts 11, verse 26, to describe these Christ followers uh, that were there in this city of Antioch in Syria, this Jew and Gentile church, um, very evangelistic, very set on reaching out uh, with, to their neighbors with the gospel. What we're going to see when we get uh, here in just a few moments is they're also interested in helping those who were hurting uh, financially because of uh, situations in their life and in the world. And then in chapters 13 and 14 and later as well in the book of Acts, we see that this church in Antioch becomes a church that's very much uh, has a worldwide mission. They're not just concerned with helping people financially, although they were. They're not just concerned with reaching their neighbors with the gospel, although they were but they're also intent on, on sending missionaries out uh, to the world with this message. And they do that with Paul and Barnabas, and then later with Barnabas and John Mark, and Paul and Silas and Timothy. Um, interesting, interesting thing. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Uh, and then we start reading in verse 27 uh, to, to hear about this church's interest in benevolence. Uh, we have a very active benevolence ministry here in our church in downtown Tyler. Um, and, and we're working with a lady today, even just today, uh, this afternoon, uh, who was trying to uh, look for help for some uh, folks. And, um, you know, our wonderful benevolence minister, uh, Donnie Carnathan, does such a great job leading that up. And that's such an important part of our work because of where we're located, right smack dab in the middle of downtown Tyler. Um, so Acts 11, beginning at verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Luke, the historian, writes, this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by, of course, Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas is sent from the church at Jerusalem up to Antioch, or down to Antioch, 
from the high country in, in Jerusalem. He goes there, he sees a great thing going on, helps them for a while, goes and gets Saul of Tarsus, brings him back, and Saul and Barnabas together are working with this great, great church, very outreach-oriented. And then this man by the name of Agabus has this prophecy that says it's going to get, there's going to be some tough times in Judea coming up. And so the, the new Christians in Antioch, they say, we need to help. We, we need to help. And so they do. They take up a collection. They gather some money. They prepare to send some things to the church in Jerusalem so that they can help distribute it to uh, the disciples that are there uh, in, uh, in Judea. Uh, it's just a great, great thing. And, uh, and, and we see this as a part of the church's mission from the very start. In Acts chapter 2, the very first day of the church, uh, it's described after those 3,000 are baptized, and then it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine or teaching, uh, the, the breaking of bread, prayer, fellowship, all of those things. But it also says that they began right then helping out the ones in need. Uh, and everyone was willing to share whatever they had for those uh, who were in need. And that was a, a great, great thing. And we see that again later with Barnabas at the end of chapter 4. Later on, we're going to see that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I don't think that passage, which is the longest uh, a passage on giving that you can find, two whole chapters and, and a great message. I would certainly encourage you to read that. As Paul writes to the church at Corinth in modern-day Greece that he will go to and work with on his uh, second mission journey, he writes that letter to them about the gifts that they had uh, promised to give and to help to encourage them to come through on what they had said they would do and to continue uh, uh, saving that up so that they'll have it when uh, someone comes and can take it with them. Um, I, I think that's a different situation than this one. This one is a very early uh, situation that's very similar, uh, but much earlier. And, um, and we're going to see Barnabas and Saul go out on this journey, and then uh, by the time chapter 12 ends up, they'll return. Um, they'll come back. Um, and uh, in fact, in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul is recounting some of the things that the, the, the Christian leaders want, asked of him when he first uh, was starting out, he said, they didn't add anything to our message, perhaps speaking about the conference we'll read about in Acts 15 coming up. He said, they didn't add anything to our message. They just told us to be sure that we remember the poor as we were very committed already to doing. We see that again from the start of the church. We see that from the very beginning of Paul's uh, life as uh, a Christian. Interestingly enough, this prophet Agabus, we think he's the same guy. Could be somebody else, but we think there, there's. Uh, uh, he's also mentioned um, in Acts 21. Uh, but instead of prophesying about a famine or something like that, he prophesies that uh, Paul, uh, as he continues on to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome, uh, is going to face some very severe trials and persecution and imprisonment. Um, and, uh, but that'll be later down the road in Acts chapter 21. Um, okay, so now we're in Acts chapter 12. Uh, and we're going to begin in Acts chapter 12, and this is when we read about the first apostle uh, killed for the faith. So we'll just read that. Uh, verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread during Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after, after Passover. And so this Herod, this is Herod Agrippa I, and he has the apostle James uh, put to death. And James, as Luke describes, is the brother of John. This James is not to be confused with the James who will become basically one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. James, who is the half-brother of of Jesus. Uh, Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus. We've talked about this in our Matthew study uh, when uh, Jesus' siblings were uh, listed, and James and Jude were two of those. Uh, Jude, James and Jude, both writers of a book in the New Testament named after them, and James, the half-brother of the Lord, becomes a very significant leader in the church at Jerusalem. In fact, when, uh, when Paul is talking about his story, he mentions specifically uh, meeting and talking with James. 
and um, and and he also mentions James, and and Luke records James kind of taking the lead in that Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15, and it's James, it's not one of the apostles, who says, look, here's what I think we ought to do, and lays out a plan, and everybody agrees, and that's what they do. Um, so he's a very significant person. Obviously, this is someone else. This person is one of the sons of Zebedee. This person is James, the brother of John. John was the, describes himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, he is the man who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and also experienced and wrote about what we read about in the book of Revelation. Uh, but it's his brother, James, who is the first apostle killed for the faith. And Luke doesn't say that much about it. It's interesting in the, uh, in the Gospels, when it talks about James and John, it almost always mentions James first. And, um, and it talks about uh, John being the brother of James, as if you won't know him unless you, you realize who his brother is. Um, but then, obviously, towards the end, we see John taking more and more role. And now, um, now James is out of the picture completely. And it's interesting that Herod goes after James first. And I wonder, if, is that just because he knew where he was, where he could find him? Well, maybe, maybe. Is it because he had some significance in the church at that time? Well, you know, likely so. Uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, these four were partners in their fishing business. Uh, Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. A couple of others likely associated with them. But it's that James who is the first Christian kill, or the first uh, apostle killed for uh, the faith. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and this Herod is Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was an infant. And, um, and this man, Herod Agrippa I, was the father of Herod Agrippa II. Interesting how that goes. My name is William H. Allen Jr. Uh, his son would become Herod Agrippa II, who with his sister Bernice, is, they are the ones who, along uh, with Festus, hear Paul's defense in Acts chapter 26. Herod was kind of a family name. It was uh, certainly, you look at uh, your Bible, will probably give you a good chart that talks about the line of, of Herod. Uh, or the Herods who ruled uh, Palestine during the first century um, and just before. Um, and so that's a, that's a really interesting, uh, interesting study. But this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, uh, has James put to death, and the Jews love it. They love him. And any good politician is going to try to do what people love, uh, unless it contradicts their values. But some politicians will even go there. And Herod Agrippa was one of those. And so he has James put to death, and then he sees how much the Jews like it, so he has Peter arrested. And you figure, well, Peter's going to meet the same fate as uh, Herod. That's what you would expect. Um, and so we keep reading uh, in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I don't think that means that they weren't praying for James, but obviously their prayers get developed a whole new sense of urgency when James was killed. But this group of Jewish leaders had already killed Jesus. They had already beaten the apostles, had them flogged, had Stephen killed. There was no way that um, they would think for a moment that uh, the authorities weren't willing to kill the Christian leaders. But the church is earnestly praying for Peter. Uh, verse 6, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. I, I don't want to make too much of that, but it's really interesting to me that, that Peter is able to just be there asleep. Maybe it's because he's exhausted. Maybe it's because he's been beaten. Maybe it's because he's just resigned himself to his fate. But um, maybe it's also because he's got that much trust in the Lord. Peter is sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Uh, other soldiers are there uh, guarding him. Suddenly, verse 7, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. 
Now, remember, Peter has had a vision before with Cornelius. He's done some incredible, amazing things, including raising someone from the dead, uh, Tabitha, also called Dorcas, that we read about at the end uh, of chapter 9. And so now we, we just, just kind of keep reading here. Uh, quick, uh, the angel tells Peter, get up. Uh, and immediately the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said, Acts 12, verse 8, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. <laughs> and so so Peter is thinking, well, this is, a, this is a great dream. I hope this really happens. And he doesn't realize it actually is happening. Um, verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. That was as far as his guided tour out of there was going to go. Uh, verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Now he realizes this is more than just a dream. This is actually happening. I'm actually freed. Um, and, and he had experienced something like that before. Remember the apostles had been uh, imprisoned and the Jewish leaders said, we're going to hold you guys overnight and then we'll talk about what we're going to do with you the next day. Well, they're released miraculously by an angel from God, and they're right out there preaching again, and that's when uh, the Jewish leaders re-arrest them, bring them in, question them, uh, have their discussion, and then threaten them and have them beaten uh, and flogged um, at the end of Acts, uh, at the, in, in Acts chapter 5. Um, and so all of this is happening now. And Peter realizes in verse 11, I know, I know without a doubt that God has delivered me. And that everything the Jewish people hoped would happen is not going to happen. And remember, uh, his, his fellow apostle, one of his closest friends in all the world, uh, his part, business partner, when Jesus called them to be disciples, uh, James, the brother of John, has already been killed. And we can't, you know, Luke doesn't spend a lot of time with that. But we know, we know what a heartbreak that must have been for all in the early church especially for the other apostles and especially for Peter and Andrew and John because they were so close, that group, that, that foursome. And remember, it's amazing to me that James would be the first apostle killed because it was Peter, James, and John that Jesus was especially close to uh, because they're the ones that he took a little bit further with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're the ones that were with him when he uh, uh, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They're the ones that went a little went farther with him on that mountain of transfiguration. And now one of those three is gone. Um, okay, Acts 12, verse 12. When this had dawned on him, when Peter realized, hey, this is for real, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. As best we can tell, this is where that first century church, a lot of them met. Uh, some of those disciples met at the house. Obviously, there was many more disciples than one family could, could house. And that's why they met in different places. Uh, but uh, in this case, they were there praying. And when uh, Luke described earlier that the church was praying earnestly for Peter, this was one of those places where that was going on. And it was the home of Mary, who was the mother of John Mark. Uh, this is the man that Barnabas uh, is related to and who will accompany Paul and Barnabas on the first mission journey in Acts 13 and 14, but he won't stay with them. He'll leave halfway through. And... Um, and because of that, Paul won't want to take him the next time around. We'll get to that story. It's pretty interesting. Uh, many people were praying at the home of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. I love this girl. This, this is a great story. Uh, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, granted, I might have done the very same thing, but she got so excited and so overjoyed that their prayers were answered and that Peter was saved that she leaves him out there. <laughs> she just runs inside. She's so excited to tell everybody she doesn't even bring Peter with her. Um, You're out of your mind, verse 15, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking. Hello, hello, I'm still out here. Somebody let me in before I get killed out here when somebody sees me. 
Um, Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now, it's interesting to me, and, I, and I'm one of these, and, but it's interesting to me that here this church was, everything they had seen with Jesus and heard from others who had seen it, everything they had seen since the church began, all the miracles, all the incredible things, and yet now James, one of the apostles, has been killed. Peter is in jail. They're praying that, that he'll be delivered, and when it happens, they're astonished. And I wonder if that's us. I wonder if we, we pray so hard sometimes. And again, we're human. They were human, so I don't want to be too hard on them because I know I'm the same way. We pray and pray and pray and pray, and then when God does it, are we surprised? Are we really thinking that he's going to hear and answer our prayers and, and give us what we want? Well, we always pray, thy will be done. We recognize that his answer is not always yes. Um, but they're astonished. They can't believe. Uh, and maybe they're, they're not astonished that God could do this because I'm sure they believed he, and knew he could. But maybe they're just astonished that actually God chose to say yes to this prayer even though he had said no when they were praying for James. Um, Peter kept on knocking, Acts 12, verse 16, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Again, James, not the James, obviously, who is an apostle and had just been killed by Herod but rather James, the half-brother of the Lord, this man who wasn't a believer while Jesus was alive and was one of those who told, kind of made fun of him at times. Hey, why don't you go up to, to Jerusalem for the feast? Because it, and anybody who's anybody is going to do that. But what changed this James was the resurrection. Paul specifically mentions that Jesus appeared to James in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's this James that becomes one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. We see it here. We see, we see it when Paul describes his early times of trying to get together with the, the leaders of the church at Jerusalem and mentions James. And we certainly see it in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem conference. Um, verse 18, in the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. I'm sure that's right. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Remember when that happened with Jesus, when they came that Sunday and realized, oh, wait, the body's not in here. What happened? And they cross-examined the guards. They just paid them off. And the Jewish leaders told them, hey, look, we'll, we'll take care of this for you. We'll, if anybody questions it, you just tell them, hey, those weak-kneed, all-forsaken apostles and disciples came and overpowered this extra-armed Roman guard, uh, broke the seal of the emperor, and rolled the stone away and stole the body of Jesus. Yeah, that'll, that's what we'll tell them. But in this case, here, with Peter's escape, uh, they don't go there. They, Herod just has the soldiers killed. Uh, these Roman soldiers were killed. And so we keep reading in verse 19, the middle of verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So Herod was ready to get out of Dodge and did and went to Caesarea and tried to make peace with some of his allies who could be potential allies who wanted to make peace with him because they knew uh, how powerful he was. And so, um, and so they, uh, uh, he does. And they kind of make up. And so when you do that, you want to celebrate it. Uh, you want to, just like today, politicians, when something good happens, they want it plastered everywhere. Um, and that's what Herod does in the time of the first century. So in Acts 12, verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. 
uh, Josephus, in his book, in his antiquity, some of his writings, uh, writes about this. And he doesn't mention what Luke mentions, that he uh, became sick with worms and died. But he does w mention that he had some kind of stomach or bowel disorder, and that after a few days he, he died. Uh, Luke attributes it to, um, to an act of God. Um, and Luke is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it is God who is at work here on the death of Herod. And, and you know, I, I ask a couple of questions in this chapter. I ask why Peter was saved and not James. I ask why Herod Agrippa I was killed uh, like this and not some of the other Jewish or Roman leaders who were every bit as much uh, seeking to destroy uh, the church. Maybe it's because of, of what Herod did in killing the Apostle James. Others would be killed, and God wouldn't respond that way. Uh, maybe God felt the church needed a sign to show them that who was really in power. Um, uh, I'll read an interesting quote uh, from um, John Stott, uh, who says this, At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders, at the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the, the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. Great quote from John Stott. And it's so, it, it's so true how we see this contrast between the start where Herod is triumphing and Peter is in prison and James is already killed. And then here at the end, Herod is killed. Peter has been miraculously freed. And the word of God, verse 24, continued to spread and to flourish. It's just an amazing contrast. And it's an amazing uh, acclamation of the power of our God. And it is the same God that we serve today uh, who still does that, who still has power. And we have seen him do that throughout history. Uh, nations are going to come and go, including ours, uh, if the Lord uh, 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 delays his coming. Um, uh, kings, monarchs, our presidents, rulers of all kinds, emperors, uh, kings like Herod, they're, they're going to come and they're going to go because it's the word of God that lasts forever. It's the institution of the church that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16, 18, when he said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, that I will build on the rock of Peter's confession. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, that's where our faith comes from. And it doesn't come from situations out in the world because sometimes those are going to go our way and sometimes they're not. Sometimes our candidate is going to win, sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes our nation will act the way we want it to, sometimes it won't. Either way, either way, whatever happens there, we will be like the church in the first century. We will be like this church that Luke is writing about in the book of Acts, that we will serve God faithfully even if it comes at a price, even if our lives are in danger, even if even if some are killed for the faith, we will continue to serve and we will continue to share his message and his church and his word will continue to grow and to flourish. That is true, isn't it? We will do that, won't we? This last part of Acts chapter 12, this last verse, verse 25, is just a, a small footnote to the mission journey that uh, the, the uh, benevolence trip that Paul and Barnabas took. Uh, verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission that we had described earlier uh, to take some of the uh, help uh, from the church at Antioch of Syria to Jerusalem and to help with the famine that would be going on in, in Judea, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Uh, this John Mark, um, a, a relative, as I said, of Barnabas, and was there in the church at Jerusalem. Uh, his mother uh, hosted the church, some of the disciples in her home. And, um, and because Barnabas and Saul, likely Barnabas especially, wants to bring him along and mentor him, uh, he does that. 
again, John Mark will leave them. And because of that, there will be a, a, a big conflict between Paul and Barnabas themselves. And we'll talk about that as we talk about, uh, again, revisit that conflict management model because um, uh, it's a difficult thing. But later on, uh, years later, Paul will write very favorably about Mark, uh, who has value in the gospel. And so um, we see that, those, that all of that is uh, mended. Um, it's interesting how we look at this as we, as we close this study today from um, the last half of Acts 11 and from Acts 12. Uh, in chapters 13 and 14, we get to read about next week Paul's first mission journey, and that'll be great. And that Jerusalem conference that will take place in such an important way in Acts chapter 15. Um, but for now, you know, we see God uh, working through his church and in and on his church. Um, we see this church while growing throughout the known world and turning into a multi-ethnic body, now Jew and non-Jew, Jew and Gentile. This church continues to hold strong relationships with one another. Uh, they care about each other, and they help each other, even if the help is needed in another place. And it reminds me a lot of our disaster relief ministry that we have here at West Irwin, and others have as well, um, that, um, that will go to a different region and, and help. Um, and our mission work as well. Uh, trusting in the Lord to see them through the challenges uh, they face. No matter what else happens, the church continues to trust the Lord. It continues to look to the Holy Spirit to guide them. Uh, we look to his word uh, as we have it now in a, in a much greater way than they did then, uh, in a written form, uh, a complete form. And, uh, and we still look to that guidance of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts as well, and the guidance that we receive from our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Um, and just like they did, we pray. When we see the challenges that we're facing, just like they saw, when James was arrested and killed, Peter was arrested uh, and threatened to be killed, they prayed. They prayed, and so do we. So do we. Uh, sometimes the answer to those prayers is no. Uh, sometimes the need that they had and the need that we have, um, will, we won't be spared, and the sacrifice will be called upon to be made, such as with James. Uh, sometimes we see God's deliverance, just as they did with, with the Apostle Peter being miraculously released. Either way, in the first century, either way they remained faithful to his word and to his call to be his witnesses in their world. Either way, the church grows. When James is, is killed, when Peter is released, the church continues to grow. The word of God continues to spread. Why? Because the people were just living faithfully with God. And praying that prayer, may your will be done, not mine, just as Jesus did in the garden. Uh, that's what they're doing. And that's what we're called to do as well. And then trusting, actually having faith in God that whatever that will is, it'll be okay. And if that will doesn't coincide with ours, that's all right. We pray to God for what our will is, but we pray knowing that his will is what we want to be done. That's what they prayed, and that's how they responded. And when God kept them safe, they continued to share the word and praised him. But when God didn't keep them safe, when James is killed, uh, when the apostles are beaten and flogged, uh, when the Apostle Paul uh, is persecuted, when the church that he writes about is persecuted, such as his letters uh, to the Thessalonians, Peter the same in 1 Peter, um, when, when the answer to those prayers and requests for safety and health and not to be harmed are answered with a no, they still praised God, they still trusted in him, and they still continued to worship and they still continue to share the gospel with others. I pray that that's what will happen uh, for us uh, as well. And so I think the same should be true of us who are today called Christians. That church at Antioch in Acts 11, verse 26, they were the first ones to be referred to as Christians. Later on, as we said in Acts chapter 26, um, uh, Agrippa would say, hey, are you, do you think you're going to convert me in such a short time? Do you think I can be persuaded to be a Christian? But I do want us to read from 1 Peter chapter 4, 
because it is the only other occurrence where that word Christian occurs. But as I said, it occurs in the context of persecution. And so these words from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He was writing to Christians who were at the bottom of the social scale, who had zero power in their community. They likely were Christians who had fled to the kind of middle and upper areas of modern-day Turkey because of that uh, persecution that we read about that started with Stephen's death. Now they're in a country that's not their own, uh, at the bottom of the social scale, and being persecuted in a great way. Uh, again, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, 1 Peter 4, 16, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And then he ends that passage in verse 19 with this statement, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Throughout the letter of 1 Peter, that's what he tells them to do. You just be the example. You do what is right and what is good. Don't suffer because you, you do what is evil. Don't suffer because you're a lawbreaker. Don't suffer for those reasons. But if you suffer as a Christian, then praise God and, and trust God, knowing that those things God will also use to bring about the spread of his gospel and the growth of his church. Let us all be willing, those of us who are called Christians today, to remember those words and to remember that great passage in John 16, in verse 33, when Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. And we get that today in our world. We realize we're going to have trouble. In the world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame that world by being crucified as a criminal killed on a cross. But he was raised from the dead on the third day, and he has overcome, and so will we. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We too, called Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Whatever that means, we will follow Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll have a good weekend. I pray for our country. Um, I plan to share a few thoughts about that on Saturday, just basically reading some scriptures that are appropriate. And we pray. We pray for our nation. We pray for our world. We pray for our communities. And I know that you will continue to do that. Why do I know that? Because that's what Christians do. God bless.